Thank you, Brother Mark. It's a joy to be with you today. And no, I'm not Clarence Sexton. I know Brother Sexton went to school with him and think highly of him and appreciate his ministry. Sexton is a good Anglo-Saxon name. Redenburg is a Dutch name. And you can always tell a Dutchman, but you just can't tell him much. But uh, I've, I've been told a whole lot the last couple of days. I've sat where you sat, and I've heard things that have stirred my heart, and I pray God will continue to do that today. Although I consider myself the undocu undocumented speaker, I promise I won't go off script very much. And uh, just to establish further rapport and credibility with you, I thought I need to tell you up front, full disclosure, that I worked in the Cayman Islands for 19 years. Did you catch that yesterday? And, uh, but I was a missionary, okay. I wasn't in the offshore financial business. <laughs> anyway, God gave us a wonderful time establishing a church that's still going for his, his glory. I appreciate the international Zoom prayer calls that I became a part of about two years ago. It was exactly what I was looking for. And quite a long story. I can't go into it, how the Lord brought me in contact with it. But I appreciate Brother Stephen asking me to preach today. And when he did so, initially I accepted with some trepidation. But when he suggested the subject of praying for revival, uh, that was like telling Br'er Rabbit, I'm going to throw you in the briar patch. I feel like a cow in clover or a hog in a hip-high mud puddle this morning. This is where we're at. You're my kind of people. This is the passion that God has ignited in my heart. and I, He's begun something. I pray he'll continue it today. The theme is prayer as well as the Holy Spirit. The two go together. And I'm not trying to one-up anybody about prayers that have been answered in my life, but I would be remiss if I did not set my seal to the solemn fact that God has answered prayer remarkably for this preacher and missionary. My wife Rachel is with me today. We both lost our first spouses, and we've been happily married for 17 years. But on February the 1st, 1994, I walked into the government hospital of Grand Cayman Island Hospital and I found my first wife, Chloe, fighting for her life. We had just moved. The government couldn't contact me. We didn't have cell phones then. And, and her oxygen saturation had uh, dipped dangerously low. And she was just saying things she didn't realize she was saying. But the things she kept saying over and over again the words of Psalm 46:10, be still and know that I am God. You know, folks, what we have on the inside is going to come out at a time like that. And that just began something that proved to me in a way I'll never forget how God does answer prayer. Skip over a lot of details, but she was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, the advanced stages of it and had to be airlifted to a Baptist Hospital in Miami, Florida. We didn't have the funds. God amazingly provided the funds. 
that's a story in itself. So she was medevaced. We almost lost her over Cuba. As soon as she was stabilized there at Baptist Hospital in intensive care where she spent an entire month, I needed to go back to see my kids. And they were not on the main island where we had started the church, but on a sister island with their grandparents. So I arrived on the main island, opened the mail, which had been accumulating for almost two weeks. A lot of it was junk. You just throw it aside real quickly. But one letter caught my attention. It was by a man in Mobile, Alabama. He said, you don't know me and I don't know you. His name was Robert. He said, but I have a ministry of intercession. He said, and I came across your name as a missionary. I will be praying for you. You don't have to respond to this. He made the mistake of leaving his phone number and I called him. I said, Brother Robert, as far as I'm concerned, that letter was postmarked in heaven and dispatched by an angel. Because here's why God laid it on your heart to pray for this missionary. I shared with him what had happened, and I just received a phone call from my sister-in-law saying that my first wife, on top of all the other symptoms and conditions she had, she was diagnosed with uh, emphysema, though she'd never smoked a cigarette in her life. And so my heart had sunk. And here I had to face my children the next day. I was going to see them on the sister island. How could I tell them, Mommy's going to be okay? But somehow after hearing that report from that man, God called him out to pray. And I was able to face my children and say, yes, Mommy's going to be all right. And she was. God raised her up. Though three out of four intensivist doctors gave up on her. She... Ended up having a double lung transplant. Her life was extended for 10 years. But I just want you to know, God answers prayer. And when he wants to send revival, he's going to call people out to pray. And I believe you're part of that group. So I wish to help with that today, if I may. My subject is, if you knew, you would ask. And you probably recognize that wording is coming from John chapter 4. If you'll turn there. John's Gospel, chapter 4, Jesus dealing with the woman at the well of Samaria. I'm so glad that we have people from different denominations and theological persuasions that are here. God has used that to send revival in the past, people coming together to pray. The great British evangelist, George Whitfield, who shook the American colonies with the first great awakening after the great evangelical awakening had begun in England, but he came to America in 1740. Everywhere he went, God just poured out his spirit in a marvelous way. But of course, he was an Anglican turned Methodist. The denomination that reaped the most converts from his ministrations in America, strangely enough, were the Baptists, causing the great evangelists to famously quip it seems that all my Methodist chickens have turned to ducks. And so I'm not trying to turn anybody into a duck today, I promise you. But I am trying to see you turned into a prayer warrior. John chapter 4, verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. 
Jesus, therefore being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour, about high noon. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. And his disciples were gone away, for his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And please note verse 10, my text verse today. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Would you bow with me just for a brief prayer? Father, please use your servant to unpack your word in the next few minutes. Would you call out your children to pray and to wait upon you to do what only you can do and what we so desperately need? There's some things we can do. I think we overestimate what we can do. Like Elijah on Carmel, we can erect the stones of the altar, as it were. We can put the wood in order atop it. We can cut the sacrifice up and put it on the wood. But God, only you can send the fire. And would you do that for the glory of your great name and for the advancement of your kingdom? In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. The immediate context and reference here you know it well, is that of Christ addressing this fallen woman, had five husbands. And the context of this living water is salvation. He masterfully leads her to ask for that living water, that artesian well within springing up into everlasting life. Up until that point, she didn't know what she was missing. And we're not surprised when unsaved people don't know what they're missing. They're, as one preacher said, one who I work for in college, they're blind as a goose in a snowstorm. They need the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Until they're born from above, they cannot even see the kingdom of God. They're clueless. But here in verse 10, does not our Lord touch upon two larger principles that apply to believers as well. I believe he does. Principles that are borne out consistently in the Word of God. Number one, God's greatest gifts must be asked for. God's greatest gifts must be asked for. Number two, if we had fuller knowledge, we would pray more. We would ask more. How strange it must seem to God, this aversion of his children to pray. And we have all these gracious invitations in the Word to do that. It is, I'm sure, a well-documented statistic. I don't question it. The average believer prays less than five minutes a day. If we only breathed physically for 300 seconds out of 43,200 seconds in a day, we would suffocate. Someone has said prayer is the Christian's native breath. But I'm afraid many of us are breathing our own polluted, recycled, recycled exhalings rather than the fresh wind from heaven. And as a result, the church is suffocating. But oh, if we knew more. If we were more informed by the Word of God. If we were more aware of things as they really exist. We would ask God for more. 
and receive what he waits to give us. And especially for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I'm so thankful that people can use that expression here and not worry about getting in trouble. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Do we not insult our great God by the meagerness of our asking? Do we not slander him, our omnipotent Lord, by our unbelief? I love to think of that great verse in the psalm, Psalm 81, verse 10, where God presents, as it were, his calling card, his business card, and he says, I am the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. Big prayers honor a big God. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, thou canst never ask too much. Oh, the God with whom we have to do, beloved, waits to be gracious unto us. But Satan characterizes him. I believe it was Martin Luther who first coined the, the phrase, God, uh, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. Where is it that we as God's people are perishing for lack of knowledge? Could I list four areas? Four areas where if we knew more, we would pray more, we would ask more, we would ask more fervently, we would ask more intelligently, we would ask more perseveringly. I hope you remember these. I know many of you are taking notes, and I trust this will be a blessing to you as you reflect back upon it. First area where if we knew more, we would pray more is this matter of the weakness of the flesh. The weakness of the flesh. Jesus said in Mark chapter 14, as his disciples were sleeping in Gethsemane, he had prayed once and he came back to them in verse 37. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest not thou watch with me one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Jesus had just told them in verse 34 why he had come to the garden. He said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. Watch with me. It was a pathetic appeal. It was a sincere one. Now let's not be too hard on these disciples. Probably we would have been doing the same thing. We were in their shoes They'd been through a lot with Jesus in the previous 24 hours. They were in shock and grief. They were physically and emotionally drained and exhausted. But they did not realize what was at stake. Or they would not have been sleeping while their master was agonizing in prayer in the shadows of Gethsemane. Why do we not watch with Jesus more over the affairs of his kingdom? I don't think it's oversimplifying to say we do not sense the spiritual danger. Oh, the powers of darkness were there under the shade of those gnarled olive trees. And you've, if you've been to Israel, you've seen some, at least uh, they're, they're trees that were just shoots when Jesus prayed there 2,000 years ago. We don't sense the danger. I have two sons. My younger son spent 15 months in the United States Army in Mosul, Iraq, in the Gulf War. He saw some awful stuff that he seldom even refers to, and I'm glad he doesn't. But on one occasion, I asked him how long he had stayed up at one time without sleeping. And he said, Dad, I stayed up 72 hours. I said, Chase, how did you do that? 
He said, Dad, you don't understand. I had to. If I had slept even for a half hour, little children would have been used to plant IEDs. They were used as human shields, and it would have meant certain death for our guys. Beloved, if we knew the danger posed by our own sinful flesh, as well as the world and Satan, we would pray more. Temptation is like fire, and our sinful nature is like tinder. Let's face it, we are susceptible to temptation. Wise, therefore, is the man who, who prays daily as Jesus instructed us to pray in Luke chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 6, lead us not into temptation. That's not just a little ritual. That's not just a little good luck charm. That's vital. Prayer, that prayer in itself is a weapon against temptation, the great John Owen said. Yes, if we understood more of the weakness of the flesh, we'd pray more. Secondly, if we understood more of the worldliness of the church, we would pray more. I know it's easy to curse the darkness, and we've talked about the worldliness that has crept into the church this week, and I'm so thankful for the messages that have said that. I don't think we've sufficiently been made aware how bad it is, because if we did, we would cry out to God in holy desperation and brokenness with the prophets of old. Oh God, we and our fathers, we and our children have sinned. You've heard it said, I'm sure, it's a very natural thing for a boat to be in water. But when water gets in the boat, you're in trouble. And the water's in the boat in the church in America. How sad it is that the church here in our beloved country, and I know we have a number of other countries represented, and I can't speak for you, but I suspect it's just as bad. In many cases, the church in America has become a theater of entertainment. It's become a, a stadium of sport. It's become a social parlor. Instead of a place where people meet with God. I'm reminded of a Sunday school teacher who challenged her pupils to take time on, that, on a given Sunday afternoon to just write a letter to God and bring it back to class the following Sunday. One little boy brought his letter and this is the way it read. Dear God, we sure had a good time at church today. Wished you could have been there. The sad truth is, people think God is there, but in many cases, he's withdrawn himself. Ichabod could be written over the doors. Oh, how America needs our prayers, but the church seems so powerless. Remember how angry Jesus got on two occasions, not just once, when he walked into the temple, one at the beginning of his earthly ministry, one at the close of his ministry. And uh, he took a whip of small cords, and he drove out the money changers, and the, overturned the tables of those that sold uh, do turtle doves and lambs for sacrifices. I mean, you never heard such bleeding and squawking in all your life. He turned into a one-man wrecking crew. And he said, it is written, my house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. I wonder what he would say about our churches today. With all the worldliness and commercialism and comedy and carnality and entertainment that transpires there under the cloak of worship. The Lord has burned a lesson from one parable into my mind about this. If you could turn there quickly, turn to Luke chapter 18. For the sake of time, I won't read the whole parable. 
But here in the beginning verses of Luke chapter 18, Jesus speaks a parable unto men, unto, to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, not to lose heart, not to give up. He talked about a widow and an unjust judge. And this widow kept coming to this unjust judge and saying, avenge me of my adversary. He didn't have any concern for her. He didn't care a flip for her. But finally he said, she's bugging me to death. She's pestering me. I'm going to have to do something. So he gave in and he did what she asked. And then Jesus gave this inspired comment, verse 6, And the Lord saith, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Don't those two things seem antithetical? Bearing long, but then avenging them speedily? Nevertheless, When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith? Shall he find that kind of faith on the earth? I believe with all my heart the best application, the best analogy that we could make for this parable is to see that the widow is the church, apparently helpless at the mercy of her enemies. The adversary is the world under the power of Satan. He's the God of this world. But deliverance is equivalent to revival comes when we cry day and night to, for God to avenge us of our adversary. He will, and he will do it speedily in his time. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, one righteous man availeth much. How much more when a praying band lays hold upon God and will not let, he go, let him go until he Bless us. Could I ask you a question? I'm serious about this, and I'm I'm pointing my thumb back at myself as I point my finger at you. Are you willing to see your church purge? Are you willing to see a backdoor revival at your church, if need be, so that the Holy Spirit will not be grieved and quenched, so that Jesus will no longer be wounded in the house of his friend? Or is your church like so many? The show has to go on. What are we going to do when we see our church or any portion of it under the power of the word? Shall we not do what this widow did and cry unto him day and night? Oh, he may bear along with us. He probably will. We will be tried to the utmost, but we have his promise that he will avenge us speedily. So I ask you today, will you give yourself to that? Do you see it as the great need of the hour? I cannot speak for other countries, but I know that here in my beloved United States of America, it seems like the church overall has become a mile wide and an inch deep. Oh, we've never been busy. We've got the programs running out here. Just look at our schedule. It'll leave you breathless. But in many instances, it's barren busyness. Appreciate what Brother Stephen said yesterday about distractions. It's in the promotional material and on the website. Distractions from both prosperity and people. It seems like here in America our affluence and advancements in technology have just made it possible for us to do more, to cram more into a day, and boy, we sure are doing it. Just a few months ago, I think it was August, a dear national missionary from Zimbabwe came through our church. We support quite a few missionaries, and I have a soft heart for missions. I haven't been a missionary myself. Her husband had just died uh, a year and a half earlier. 
A great work over in Zimbabwe, more than 20 national churches, and these pastors are going on. They've had a spirit of revival among them. She's an amazingly strong and resilient woman. She looks after the needs of those pastors. She's like a modern-day Mary Slessor. And she said, she leaned over the pulpit, and she didn't even act embarrassed to say so. She said it without batting an eye. She said, you know how our believers and national pastors are praying for you right here at Friendship Baptist Church and for the churches in America? They're praying, Lord, help our American brothers and sisters. They're so distracted. They're so distracted. And so we are. The things of the world have crept in. May God help us to keep our focus on Him, Him alone. Thirdly, I believe that if we understood more about the true warfare that's taking place in the heavenlies, we would pray more. The warfare in the heavenlies, not only the worldliness in the church, the weakness of our flesh. I think we seldom think about this, but there is a constant battle going on for the souls of men in the heavenlies. And I wonder if we sufficiently realize that prayer is what tips the balance of power in the spirit realm. Spiritual battles are largely unseen. Stephen referred to this passage, 2 Kings chapter 6. I was afraid he was going to steal my thunder there for a minute this morning. The prophet Elisha was with his servant in, in Dothan. That's not Dothan, Alabama, where Bob Jones Sr. was born. That's Dothan over in Israel. That's where Joseph went to check on his brothers and found them. The prophet Elisha is with his servant in, in that Dothan, and he sees the city surrounded by, by horses and chariots and a host of soldiers sent to besiege and capture Elisha by the king of Syria, the enemy. I mean, the king of Syria is beside himself. Somebody has been uh, tipping off the king of Israel as to what his next move is going to be. Somebody's been snitching. I mean, anything he says in his bedroom gets told to the king of Israel. And so the servant says to his prophet, his master Elisha, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And Elisha responds, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And the Bible says God opened the servant's eyes, and he saw the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire, God's unseen forces sent to defend his prophet. But I want to remind you, Satan has... His unseen demons too. Let us never forget that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Sometimes we forget that. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this spiritual world, against spiritual darkness in high places. Oh, please hear me today. It needs to be said again, though it's nothing new. Our battle is not with man. Our battle is not with the liberals in Washington, D.C. It's not with the ACLU. It's not with the status and the elitists. It's not with the abortion crowd. It's not even with radical Islam. Our battle is with spiritual forces, cosmic powers in the heavenlies. And therefore, the weapons of our warfare must not be fleshly, but spiritual, mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. If the eyes of our understanding were truly open like the physical eyes of this prophet of Elisha, we would pray more. We would trust God for more. Much has been said already about Mark 9, 29, matter of prayer and fasting. 
But prayer aided by fasting is what enables spiritual <clears throat> breakthroughs with this war against unseen spirits in the heavenlies. We know that Daniel fasted for 21 days <clears throat> while an angel dispatched to him was withstood, resisted by the prince of Persia who certainly represents the agency of Satan as told about in Daniel chapter 10. God told Daniel that he'd answered his prayer but it took 21 days for the answer to get to him. And Daniel just kept on praying. And God honored that act of faith and discipline and sacrifice. And the angel finally arrived to give the prophet those great messianic proclamations in the last chapters of Daniel. We're familiar with the instance, as has already been talked about, when Jesus cast the demon out of that epileptic boy at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration, where the nine disciples had remained below while the th three, the inner circle of three, went up with Jesus to the top of the mountain. So they were unable to cast out the demon out of this boy. And when Jesus came back down from the mountain, they asked him, they said, why could not we cast him out? They couldn't say it wasn't God's will because they'd cast out demons in other cases. They'd gone on preaching, short-term preaching missionary trips and, and cast out demons. And Jesus said this, it's because of your unbelief, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Why is the church so impotent in the face of unprecedented obstacles and attacks from our culture, from compromise in doctrine and in church order, from false brethren, from frontal assaults of Satan himself? Why are we so impotent? Jesus expressed it in one word, unbelief. And what's the cure? Prayer and fasting. But our churches have become places of feasting, not much of fasting. Oh, there's times for that. There are times when we just need to celebrate God's goodness and, and just have a wonderful time of fellowship that includes the eating of good food. Nothing wrong with that. But oh, what about the times of fasting when we lay hold of God's willingness? The times are desperate, but God's people are not. Shall we not get back to that? Some have fasted for this meeting. Shall we not just lay aside every weight as well as the easily besetting sin that plagues us? That we may be as the soldier that just strips down to only what he needs for the battle. Do we really believe that God, who accepted the fasting and the sacrifice of His Son, will likewise reward with spiritual power the soul that is ready to give up everything for Jesus? Do we really believe that? If we knew more, if we understood more about what's happening in the spirit realm, I believe we'd pray more, because that's what tips the balance of power. But I've saved a little time for the fourth point, another one I wish to dwell on the most. If we knew more about the power of the Holy Spirit, the witness of the Spirit, I'm calling it, we would pray more. Now, I remind you, God is who He is through His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the best and, and the chief of God's gifts. I'm sure many of you have done this, but please 
uh, bear with me for the sake of those who may not. If you ever compared Luke eleven thirteen with Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, it's almost exactly the same wording. Jesus said, if he then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, even the worst dad pretty much loves to give some kind of gift to his kids. If he then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your father in heaven, your heavenly father, give, and Matthew says, good things. Give good things. Luke says the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. The Holy Spirit is the conveyancer of all God's gifts. The Holy Spirit is the author of this book. How else can we make it known to others unless the interpreter gives it to us? He is the one who is active in creation and providence and redemption. Until the Holy Spirit was given, no man ever prayed in Jesus' name. Until Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, he never preached a sermon. He never worked a miracle. He never saved a single soul. How can we do the work of God without the Spirit of God? The best gift is the Spirit. And so we're so reluctant to ask. But we need to ask, and I appreciate what Brother Washer said yesterday about that. But first of all, may I just share with you and remind you that the Holy Spirit is the witness. Would you turn to John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27? John 15, 26 and 27. These are words said by our Savior in the upper room. Wonderful, comforting words. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, Jesus said. But notice 27, and ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. Oh, don't miss this. Follow me carefully. It was only the Holy Spirit who witnessed the incarnation of Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary. What did the angel say to to Mary when she said, how shall this be, saying, I know not a man? The angel said, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. It was the Holy Spirit who witnessed the incarnation of Christ. It was the Spirit alone who witnessed the inner dynamics of the miracles of Jesus in his earthly ministry. How virtue went out from him to to heal and to restore and to quicken. It was through the eternal spirit, the writer to the Hebrew says, that Jesus offered himself without spot unto God when he died on the cross for our sins. And on the third day he was raised by the spirit of holiness. Yes, multitudes saw the risen Christ, but only the Holy Spirit witnessed the rising of Christ. So how can we bear witness of the gospel without the co-witness of the spirit of God? I must have that. I must have the corroboration of the spirit of God upon my witness and ministrations. When I speak, I need the Holy Spirit to say amen in the deep recesses of men's hearts. I need him to bear witness that the blood of Jesus has the power to pardon and to cleanse from sin. I don't care how many seminary degrees I have, how much I've studied, 
how good a speaker I might be, I must have the Spirit of God. Now, how are we to have that Spirit in that sense? Well, we must ask. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Don't be afraid of that verse. Please don't be afraid of that verse. I, I, know, I, I know what Romans 8 verse 9 says, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. Yes, if we are saved, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful truth that is. All the blessings, the byproducts that come from that. But nowhere in the Bible is an unbeliever commanded to ask for the Holy Spirit. At least I haven't seen it. If, 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 you, if I've missed it, please take me aside and show me the way more perfectly. Nowhere is an unbeliever told to ask for the Spirit. The unbeliever is, is commanded to repent, to believe the gospel, to call upon the, the name of the Lord, or at least encouraged and invited to ask for that living water of salvation as Jesus did with this woman of Samaria. But it must be to believers that Jesus directs His words here in Luke eleven thirteen, And it certainly stands to reason that if the Holy Spirit is the chief and first of God's gifts, then He should be the first and chief object of our prayers. If we only knew, we would ask. In the same chapter, Luke chapter 11, these disciples had come to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. As John also taught his disciples. And it was in, in this context that Jesus gave what would most appropriately be called the model prayer, not really the Lord's prayer, that's John 17, but he gave the model prayer, but that's not all. He gave these words in Luke eleven thirteen, 13. And the disciples took those words so seriously that they waited after Christ's ascension for 10 days in the upper room in prayer, waiting for the promise of the Father. Don't forget that previous to that, on the evening of his resurrection, Jesus had breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Was that just prophetic or symbolic? I'll just rest my case with you. I would submit to you that something really happened then. If you compare uh, the, Luke 24 with John chapter 20, the parallel account there, you'll see that a great change came over these disciples from that moment on. Jesus opened their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures, it says in Luke 24, verse 45. Before that, they were blind as bats. They didn't get it. It didn't matter how many times Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be delivered up to the chief priests and elders. I'm going to suffer and die. They didn't get it. But now they did. Gone was the gloom and the confusion. Jesus was alive. He was Raised for their justification, his soon ascension to heaven was to be for their advantage so that he could send one just like him, the paraclete, from the Father to take his place. They were a transformed bunch. And so they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They had received the Holy Spirit in his illumination. They were filled with joy. They, they understood it for the first time. But now they needed his power. And so now with that fuller knowledge, they banded together and for 10 days waited in the upper room until when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they got what they asked for. They got what Jesus told them to wait for. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, I want to be careful here, beloved, but I, the last I checked, the statute of limitations has not run out on that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
The age of the Spirit of God has not expired. Again and again in the history of the church, God has graciously visited His people with infusions of new life. Sometimes when the flame was barely flickering on the candle of the church, and the result has been a great ingathering of souls, multitudes pressing into the kingdom of God. And again, I say invariably, as it was the case in my own experience with my first wife, when God has a purpose of grace, he calls people out to pray, to wrestle with him and pray. Such was the case with David Brainerd, that's one of my heroes. I'm so thankful that against Brainerd's wishes, Jonathan Edwards preserved his diary and journal. By the way, it was Brainerd who wrote in his famous journal, I find it is good to persevere in attempts to pray, even if I cannot pray with perseverance. That's helped me so much. I find it's good to persevere in attempts to pray, even if I cannot pray with perseverance. He was laboring to win Native Americans to Christ in the 1740s. He didn't even live to see his 30th birthday. Alone in what he called the hideous wilderness, handicapped much of the time by having to use a a drunken interpreter. His body ravaged by tuberculosis that was called consumption back then. He toiled and fasted and prayed without many outward results for several years. But then one August day, in 1745, in a place called Cross Weeksung, New Jersey. And he, after he preached on the parable of the Great Supper from Luke chapter 14, it wasn't at the time of the sermon, but as he was just inculcating, he said, going over it from teepee to teepee, hut to hut, just going over what he had preached personally with the Indians, he said, and I quote, the power of God seemed to descend upon the assembly like a rushing mighty wind, and with an astonishing energy it bore down all before it. He said, I stood amazed at the influence which seized the audience almost universally, and I could compare it to nothing more aptly than the irresistible force of a mighty torrent or swelling deluge that with its insupportable weight and pressure bears down and sweeps before it whatever is in its way. Almost all persons of all ages were bowed down with concern together, and scarcely one was able to withstand the shock of this surprising operation. Old men and women who had been drunken wretches for many years, and some little children, not more than six or seven years of age, appeared in distress for their souls, as well as persons of middle age. We can take it or leave it, six or seven. Did they really get saved? It was apparent that these children were not merely frightened with seeing the general concern, but they were made sensible of their danger, made sensible of the badness of their hearts and their misery without Christ. The most stubborn hearts were now obliged to bow. They were almost universally praying and crying for mercy in every part of the house and many outside the house. Their concern was so great, each one for himself, that none seemed to take any notice of anyone else, but each prayed freely for himself. He went on to say, I must say, I never saw any day like it in all respects. It was a day wherein I am persuaded the Lord did much to destroy the kingdom of darkness among this people. This was indeed a surprising day of God's power, and it seemed as if God had bowed the heavens and come down. That really happened. And most of these people didn't even know they had a soul. One lady came to mock 
She stopped at Brainerd's hut on the way to the clearing where he was going to preach. She intended to disrupt it all. But before he could even preach, she was so smitten with conviction, she wallowed on the ground and said, Oh, have mercy upon me, oh God, and give me a new heart. Amen. The God of David Brainerd is still our God. Will we give ourselves to prayer like he did? And if we would have the power to persevere in that, let us resolve to know our God better. Jesus said in words that I hope we'll take to ourselves, if you knew, you would ask. If you knew the weakness of your flesh, if you knew the worldliness of the church, the true state of your church and so many others around you, if you understood the warfare in the heavenlies and the principalities and powers and spiritual forces, you would pray more. If you understood the power of the witness of the Spirit, so wonderfully promised, but not yet the power of the Spirit not yet completely exhausted, you would pray. Let's pray. Father, what greater incentive do we need to pray for personal quickening and for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon our churches? Lord, but you ignite something in our hearts at this conference that will cause us to be different when we go home, to bombard heaven with our persistent asking. Help us to understand more of the weakness of our own flesh so averse to prayer. May it cause us to watch and pray lest we enter into temptation. As we see the worldliness of the church, as Isaiah saw those with unclean lips around him, may cause us to cry out to you, Lord, avenge her of the adversary. As we understand more fully the warfare in the heavenlies, may it awaken us to that realization we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. May we engage in not only praying to you, but against Satan. As we understand more of the witness of the Spirit, may we pray for those greater works that Jesus promised we would do if we believe into him. Greater works done by the glorified, exalted, resurrected Savior. Help us to take those words and appropriate them, appropriate them to our own hearts. Please get all the glory for it. May no one desire to be, the, to be known as the uh, instrument that you would use and be recognized for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.